look at verses 40 through 52 uh, this morning in our time together. I guess I should turn there too. And let's just start by reading the passage and then we'll, we'll look at it together. You can follow along as I read. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David? and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. That's one of those great understatements, isn't it, in all of the Bible. (laughs) The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? For this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, Lord, we do pray that you should bless the reading of your word, its application to our hearts in Christ. Amen. How do you deal with division? Uh, disagreements. Some of us, uh, we get to that place where we say, if I'm right, I'm right, and that's just how it is. Uh, Let the chips fall where they may. There are others among us, I dare say, that we try to avoid disagreements and divisions as much as possible, don't we? For those of you who are like that, you just go ahead and nod your head. No need to, uh, to call yourself out. But what if you can't avoid them? What if divisions in the world, in the church, society is inevitable? I think that's what you see in our passage here in John chapter number 7. John wants to give us a survey of the response of Jesus. The reality that, uh, that he is a, in one sense we'll see, a divisive individual. That may be shocking to you, but I think it will make more sense as we go along. Remember, as a child growing up in an independent fundamental missionary Baptist church, it's fun to say it just like that, missionary independent fundamental Baptist church, <laughs> that as a child in the 80s and 90s, uh, I, I kept hearing this word of ecumenicalism. All I knew was it was bad and I didn't want it, wasn't sure if there was a cure for it. In fact, if you can't spell it, I'm not sure you should trust it. Uh, our denomination growing up had a, uh, had a disdain for what was considered this kind of cooperative Christian movement beyond uh, doctrinal distinctives. The idea that Christianity can come together and work together for a common goal and a common good despite the, uh, those denominational distinctives for my childhood was unheard of. It was un- almost next to... Um, well, that's about as bad as you can get, I think. Well, there were some good things about this. Uh, some of you that were a part of that or uh, have seen that in your churches growing up. There's something with the idea that, that beyond our 
divisions beyond those distinctives which separate us. There's a common goal or something which which brings us with a common mission, God, the gospel, something brings us together and unites us. But even in that, it's hard not to notice the fractures that take place. Uh, a reformed conference um, finished in 20, or yeah, just a year ago uh, with a population of people coming 10 to 15,000 every other year to this conference all focused on the gospel surely we can all get along on the gospel and yet the conference has has seen its last day divisions creep in all over the place the universalist would tell us that the problem is we have to broaden our perspective we need to kind of span out and, and get away from some of the rigidness that tends to divide us and, and focus on those things that unite us. In fact, uh, reading some of their literature and some of the stuff that they post, you're almost amazed that they're able to bring together not just the Buddhist, but the atheist and the humanist and the Christian and every other denomination they can think of. The reason is, they claim, is because they know, they have this knowledge, that there is no one right answer. Well, there you go. We don't have to be divided. We don't have to have division or conflict if we all just come to that conclusion that there's no one right answer. And so the atheist can come and say, there is no God. The Christian can come and say, well, there is a God. And, and at the end of the day, they can shake hands and embrace in some sort of religion experience and some might think of jesus in this sort of way that under the umbrella of jesus there is all sorts of different kinds of people with different kinds of belief just sort of being merged together coming together and in one way we see in the epistles that there is a little bit of truth to that but uh, but there's also a misguidedness in that in fact jesus speaking and Matthew, and again recorded for us in Luke, is the controversialness of his message. That his preaching and his person demands a response, and the response to him is always diverse. Not only the diverse divisions seem to always be inevitable. Consider his words in Matthew chapter number 10. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have, not come, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. We see the same thing in Luke 12, 51 through 52. <clears throat> As he says, I tell you, I came to bring division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. When I read that, I just have to ask you the question as it does, as it hits me, does that surprise you? In some ways it does, doesn't it? If we're honest, because we think of the gospel and Jesus himself as being a unifier. But it should not surprise us. In fact, we find that Jesus' claims or his call to those who would be disciples, those who would put their faith and trust in him, his demands are allegiance. 
And not just allegiance by tipping your hat or saying, yeah, I'm a that guy, but allegiance that is greater than your allegiance to anyone else. Above father and mother and society and government and all those things like that. But not is it just a demand for allegiance. Jesus is set for us as our only hope. Of course, those who have come and received him as their hope, those who have come and put their faith and trust in him are united in Christ, but those who are not find themselves divided by Christ. And that's really what's going on in chapter number 7. We've already seen this in a couple of weeks ago as we were beginning into chapter number 7, and, and as, it was as if John was giving us a survey of the people around Jesus and his ministry and what was going on, what people were thinking, his brothers, his family, his, uh, his people from out of town, the Judeans, the Pharisees, and they were all coming to this conclusion of who Jesus was, what Jesus was about. And then you have this kind of watershed sermon and, and really this beautiful invitation, verse number 37, where he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And we saw that last week where Jesus stands up in the middle of the festival that was all about God and his provision. Say, hey, if you want to see God's provision, come to me. And either he is he knows what he's talking about or he is definitely out of touch with reality to take the focus off the Father and bring it on himself. We said it's not out of touch. He is the one sent from God. Come to me. And so on the other side of that verses 40 through 52 John is giving us a uh, the kind of ripple effect as if Jesus throws the rock in the pond of declaring himself as the fulfillment the satisfaction of our deepest need and longing and the ripples which take place from that as he surveys the the division among the people in the area uh, and the disdain of the of the Pharisees we see that midway through this but you also see this kind of view of a disciple on this Nicodemus character and I want to walk through it just like that might be helpful for us as we navigate through this and first let's notice the division concerning Jesus now interesting how God has given us his word isn't it it's almost if John is just going around with, with, with a pad and paper and he's, he's just taking a, a survey of what people are saying in their conversations. Well, what's going on about him? He just preached this sermon, Come unto me, all you who thirst, and, and, and I will satisfy you. And, and now it's the, the commentary, or maybe it's the, the Twitter version of the first century. What are people saying about his sermon? What are people saying about him? It's not necessarily about his words, but him personally. And so we see this kind of real-time response in verse number 40 uh, through 45. Notice with me, first he speaks to those or reveals to us those who see Jesus as some sort of prophet. Verse number 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. This is the one God had 
spoken about in the Old Testament. Maybe this is the prophet that was to follow, the one that would be like Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, or some would think maybe this is the prophet that was supposed to come to prepare the way for the Messiah, Elijah kind of figure. But nevertheless, they, they made this recognition that this Jesus, after hearing him speak, he was sent by God. Were they wrong? No, he was sent by God and he was the prophet. I don't think they understood the reality of what they were saying. In fact, Hebrew writer reminds us in Hebrews 1 through 3 that not only was he a prophet, he was the greatest of all prophets. There was no one like him, no one given the the depth of revelation to us as Jesus gave. In fact, what we see of a prophet is one who stands before men on behalf of God. They're ones to declare the word of God and the reality, the character, the will of God. And and what we find in the Bible is there's no one in comparison to Christ in that capacity. Not just in the words in which he spoke, though we should give great attention to them, but in his person. He was the manifestation of the invisible divine father the godhead the bible tells us in fact that's what john begins doesn't the word which was with god from eternity past that created all things was made flesh and dwelt among us that's why john said we could behold his glory in essence they were right as they was arguing we realize this man and the way he spoke and the way he he's going on is a prophet that is sent by god maybe even the prophet in fact, it is a reminder to us today, if we would know God, and if we would know his word, if we would want to know who he is, then we look, we're to look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. And we look at all of scripture, I understand that all of scripture is revealing to us something about God, but there is something fixed, something full and, and, and alive in the representation that we have in Jesus, because he is the divine son, the very exact imprint of the image of God. All I'm saying to you this morning and, and to my own heart is that to know God, to, to really understand who he is, we must come to him through Jesus Christ. But we will always get it wrong. A lot of people hold the Bible and a lot of people use the Bible in their religious services and exercise but because of their denial of christ of who he is and the reality of his person they are they're looking with a book that is closed not that the book itself is closed but that their understanding and their mind is closed to the reality of god they they search but they cannot find him because they they dismiss the fullest revelation he gave of himself in jesus christ So you see, there were some there who were saying that there is this prophet. He's a prophet, one sent by God. It's quite funny, isn't it? Jesus asked uh, his own disciples, what are people saying to us or saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And they go through all these things. And as they go through these things, we find the same thing here revealed to us. He's a prophet. Well, others were saying, verse number 41 that this is the Christ, or he's the Messiah, the anointed one. He's... Well, were they right? <laughs> of course they were. Uh, Jesus Christ is not his first and last name. Christ is his title. He is the anointed one, uh, the one sent by God 
uh, to come and do what God has called him to do, namely to redeem his people from their sins. He is the one sent by God, and some are seeing that that this reality of Christ in his ministry, surely he is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the one we've been waiting for, the deliverer. Maybe even the Pharisees knew about this. That's why they're being hushed about it. it some of the conversation earlier in chapter number 7. Now, as it is, well, they were trying to work through, okay, is he really the Messiah, though? The detractors were saying, well, he's from Galilee. Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. And at this point, it's almost as if we know more than they do. Don't you love the time you live now? You can look back in the Word and and see all the pieces put together. They're in the middle of seeing just a pile of Lego pieces. They don't have the map yet. That's for some of you younger people that still play with Legos. They're trying to put all the pieces together. Who is this guy? Is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? Is the Messiah supposed to come from Galilee? I thought he was supposed to come from Bethlehem, the village of David. We understand, and even the people that received this letter would have understood the Gospels, the other accounts who said he was born in Bethlehem. And so you see this kind of division among them. They were right in their thinking, though, even if he was a Messiah that they didn't anticipate. You may recall John the Baptist, who was in prison He stood up to Herod um, boldly, and because of that, he would lose his head. We know how the story goes. But at one point, you see kind of a a wavering. It it seems like in his fate, a little doubt coming in uh, in his life as he sends his followers to go out and speak to Jesus. and, And he asks him, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Now, we may throw rocks at John the Baptist and say, you got it all wrong, but, but he didn't. There, there was parts and pieces that he didn't understand that a Messiah was to come, and Jesus was that one, but he was coming in a much different way than they had anticipated. Not a deliverance from the Gentile and a purifying the people from idolatry in that way, but first a deliverance from our sin and the taskmaster of death and the devil. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, uh, answering them, go tell John what you hear and see, and the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So he is a, a Messiah. He is the prophet. But notice what others are saying. We see the third group of people, and that is the soldiers Verse number 46, or 44 through 46. Uh, The Pharisees had sent out a group of people to arrest him as he was there in the temple. They came, they saw him, they heard him. Notice the response. Uh, Some of the people wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers that came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, you know they could have said a lot of stuff. They could have said, well, you know, there's a great deal of people and the the people thought he was a prophet and the people thought he was a Messiah and we're afraid we were going to be stoned by the people. In fact, the the Pharisees did a lot of what they did and the chief priest and and the crucifixion of Christ in secret because they feared the multitude. They thought there was going to be a mob rule. That isn't why he wasn't arrested. That isn't what they said. They could say that. They could have said that, but they didn't. Notice what they said in verse number 46. 
Not only is he a prophet and a Messiah, but he is a teacher unlike any other. No one ever spoke like this man. Isn't that remarkable? No one ever spoke like him. Mark captures it this way in Mark 1, 22, And they were astonished at his teaching, speaking of the multitude, for he taught them as one had, who had authority and not as the scribes. And later on he says, And they were all amazed and astonished among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Highlighting the fact that not only did he speak with boldness and authority, but he spoke so much so that when he said to the demons to depart and go out, they listened. What we find throughout the gospel is one of the most amazing counts in the gospel records is when he's in the middle of a storm, the disciples are scared of their life, and what does he say? Be still. What happens? Some of you have said to your grandkids and your kids, be still. What happens? Come on, they they belong to you. They're part of that DNA that that you share and they don't listen. And yet you see in the gospel narratives that the power of his voice, he says to the winds and waves, be still and they stop immediately. I, I can't even picture that. We think it kind of got, probably died down a little bit, you know, and then the clouds kind of rolled away, and then the water sort of slowed down, they got to land, and, and then everything was great in the morning. The text doesn't speak about it that way, does it? Immediately. They're like, yes. No wonder people followed him. No wonder people wanted to hear him. Multitudes of people uh, come to listen to him or driven to anger at the things that he said, loved or hated, he was never ignored. No one ever spoke like this man. It was said of George Whitfield that he preached more than ten, to more than 10 million people in his lifetime. This is before they had automobiles, right? So that's been a while back. He preached some 18,000 sermons in his lifetime. And he died relatively young comparatively to our day. Crowds up to 20,000 and more at one time would come and hear him preach. Uh, it was said Benjamin Franklin, as he was preaching in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Benjamin Franklin, with his scientific mind, st- said he was going to do a survey to see how far the voice of George Whitfield could be heard clearly. And so he kept backing up and backing up as Whitfield was preaching. And he estimated that nearly 30,000 plus people could hear Whitfield as he preached plainly. That's without a microphone. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? It was said that he um, preached with such passion and such zeal that David Hume, the humanist, would running to hear him preach, and someone said to him, why in the world are you going to listen to this guy? You don't believe a thing that he says. And he says, no, but he does. And Spurgeon says the reason he thinks that Whitfield had such power in his preaching, not just the spiritual aspect of that, because he was a man who was fully alive. He said that most of us are just halfway there. As... Impressive as that may be, consider the preaching of Jesus Christ, a man who was truly alive, never marked or tainted by the, by the influence of sin. 
perfectly knowing the Father and the Father's will with such understanding, such intellect that we could not fathom or grasp a man truly alive, captivating, demanding attention. These guys were going to arrest him. They had, they had no chance of fulfilling uh, their mission. I want you to notice the Pharisees. You see the division among the people. He's a, he's a prophet. He's a Messiah. There's a division whether they were the same person or would be the same person. He's a great teacher. Uh, but I want you to notice the disdain. Verse number 47 the Pharisees answered them, speaking of the, the officers, the court officers there. Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crown that does not know the law is accursed. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees were the elite. We've talked about those. They were the, they were the brightest, the best, the brightest, the wisest people. They knew the law frontward and backwards. They were, the, they were the go-to people, the answer people. If you had questions about the Mosaic Law and, and how it applies and all that, you would go to these guys. And what they say to them is very remarkable because it reminds us that the very people that should have been on the doorstep of Jesus' ministry, the very first ones should have not only been expecting him to come but have received him for who he is are those who said in such disdain, have we come to such a level to where we would take a Galilean Savior? Has any of us succumbed to that kind of, that, that kind of poor thinking that has gone on with the masses? That's what they're saying here. They show their, their kind of high, high thoughts of themselves and their disdain for, for this man. And they said, have we been deceived? But what they're saying is the masses, they're just ignorant people. Just common folk. <laughs> of course they're going to be deceived. They don't know anything. They, they're already damned. They're cursed. They, they don't know the law. They don't follow the law. But he says, we know it. Have any of us been deceived? Have any of us followed after that? And doesn't it remind you what Paul says to the Corinthian church? To a group that put a great emphasis on education and wisdom and philosophy? He said, where is the wise one? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish or made foolish the wisdom of this world? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I would say this, and I think you know that. Some of you that have already made your way through college, those of you who may be headed off into that direction, it should not surprise you that many of the people in academia, in our universities across this country, and even across this world, not many will put their faith and trust in Christ. Not many professors and experts of our time come away with this conclusion that Jesus was sent by God and faith in him, belief in him, is how one will be saved. It is foolish. It's folly. Uh, they relegate this reality of God and even the discussion of Jesus to some other discipline such as theology or religion or whatever else they do, not realizing is the most significant reality that they'll ever have to deal with. Jesus. 
So as you head off to college, as you head off to these places, don't be surprised that if you stand with Christianity or if you stand with a belief in God or in the Bible, that you're not, that you'll be standing in the minority. Paul telling us even what we see here of Jesus' own people, that the wise guys, those who are seen to be the smart people, the people in influence, the people in power have rejected him. None of them have come to him, at least in their boasting. And I want to say that they are willfully blind, just as the people in our day who reject Christ, they're willfully blind. Their pride and bias has closed this book to them, closed the reality of God to them. They know facts and they know details, but always with a skewed understanding. Even when Jesus will rise from the dead and it will be pronounced to them, they will deny it and come up with a lie. Constantly they speak for facts and stand over them, but they never stand under them. That is the situation our world is in. We can talk about Christian beliefs and Christian ideas and what the Bible says, but always in a position of superiority, always in a position of judging over it and never allowing the word of God to judge us. And we know in that kind of contrast what always wins out, and that is the wisdom of this world and our own wisdom versus the wisdom that has come from God. Richard Simmons, in a book on the, uh, with um, articles on the existence of God, gave a story of C.S. Lewis as he came to faith in Christ. Some of you may know him as the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity. Chronicles of Narnia is a lot easier to read than Mere Christianity, just saying, if you want to read him. A lot more enjoyable. The others are good, though. Simmons wrote uh, concerning the uh, conversion of C.S. Lewis happened by two events. One was a book he read by G.K. Chesterton, minister in England. The other was when one of his colleagues came to his room one evening and confided in him that he believed that the historical authenticities of the Gospels were sound and accurate. Here's a guy coming into his room and says, I think what all these fundamentalists are saying about the Bible, them being historical, is probably true. Now, you may say, well, somebody's trying to convert Lewis and win him over. But what troubled him the most is this was one of the most militant and staunch atheists in Oxford. And he says he come into his room, T.D. Weldon, Weldon, he came into his room without any hidden agenda of trying to persuade him to Christianity. And he said God would not let him rest. Lewis was an English professor at Oxford and, and he came to this conclusion overcoming his own biased thoughts that the Bible was filled with myths. All that is to say... The Pharisees make a bold claim here, don't they? Not one of us educated folk. (laughs) They didn't say folk. You know, they probably said something smarter than that. Since I'm not one of that class, I'll say folk. Not one of us follows this guy. 
not one of the people in power, not one of the prominent people, not one of the well-educated people. They don't believe all this nonsense or deceived by him. And then don't you have what you see here in this chapter? Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. I think it's remarkable, isn't it? That even among the classes of those who we might see far gone and far lost in their atheism and their unbelief, God is ransacking the ranks of hell and redeeming. Nicodemus, who was one of them, it says here, notice the last, our last point if you're taking points, the, the despise of those and a daring call for disciples. Uh, verse number 50, <clears throat> Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was, a son of, who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter number 3 by night. We tend to give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe that's when his schedule was free. But it seems that maybe because he's trying to work this thing out without the influence of those in his, his group, those who are seeking to kill Jesus. Nevertheless, this encounter with God is working on him. And I think Nicodemus is a work in progress, don't you? I mean, here he, he at least steps forward and makes a statement. Later on, you'll see him making that bold declaration, give us the body of Jesus with Joseph of Arimathea. And so he looks to them and he says to them in their law, as he rebukes them, does not our law judge a man first without giving him a hearing and learning what he does? What is he doing? Well, he's bringing them back to their own tradition. But there is in this a rebuke, maybe a soft rebuke. You've already condemned a man without listening to him, without hearing him. You've shut your ears to him. You've shut your eyes so that you may not see the deeds that he's done. He's made a lame man whole. He's, he's fed thousands of people. All the miracles and all the things that he's done. And Nicodemus is just simply saying to these people who, who have it out to murder this man, look at what you're doing. You, you won't give him the time of day if you say you're so well versed in the law. Doesn't our law tell us not to condemn a man before you hear it? Notice the response. <coughs> they say in verse number 52, they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now I think this is New Testament language and, and I might be a little off. Are you a dummy? Are you like one of those simpletons who don't know the law? Are you, are you one of those who are... Who are are you from where he's from? No prophet ever arises from Galilee. Now, there's, let me mention something about that, and, and I'll hopefully leave us with a few thoughts here. They're wrong. So, I mean, if we did some fact-checking, you know, that's what we do today. A guy's speaking, the time he's speaking, you got some guy over here that loves computers and Google, and, and he's just fixing all this stuff and fact-checking real life. Don't you like that? And at the end of a speech, you get some, somebody says, well, we have five things that, that he got wrong. That's pretty cool. Don't necessarily have that in this day. You didn't have fact checkers or Google or any of that kind of stuff like that. You understand. But there were prophets from Galilee. Jonah was one of them. Maybe even Nahum. 
Some suggest Elijah may have come from that region. Uh, there's other names that could be added to that, suggest that they come from Galilee. So, so they were wrong. And what they come to this conclusion is no notable person from God that has any big thing to do will ever come from Galilee. He's speaking about the present. If God was going to do something, he would do something among us in Judea where everything happens. It's where all the, the, the power brokers are here. This is where all the religious people are. This is where all the, the well-to-do. He says, if God is doing a day, he's going to do it among us. Doesn't that bring you back to the humility of Christ when he took on flesh and became a servant? That he did not come in the form of those who were in the elite classes. In fact, so much so did he clothe himself in flesh and humility that those who were well-to-do and those who were, were in the know rejected him as being a simpleton and a deceiver and possessed by devils. Well, they're throwing mud at Nicodemus, aren't they? They're saying, are you one of him are you with him one of his followers are you from galilee too and it brings us back to this question of discipleship doesn't it what does it entail i could set it this way in a question are you willing to become a fool to be saved are you willing to become a fool in our day to become a follower of christ to be thought foolish by this world and all of its all of its trappings and all of its wisdom and all of its pursuit to be thought foolish to have everlasting life. I don't answer that too quickly. Because wisdom and the wisdom of this world is quite intimidating, isn't it? It's pressure. No one wants to be thought out there and on their own and out in left field. We don't want to be thought to be ignorant or, or dumb or foolish or any of those things like that, do we? And yet what the Bible says is that those who believe that Jesus is sent from God, that he is God incarnate, and that belief in him only is the means for salvation, the Bible says that the world looks at that as a foolish message, a foolish gospel. It's wiser to be open. It's wiser to be universalist. It's wiser to be anything else other than, than belief in Christ. And Nicodemus is at a point. I don't think he's there yet. But I think he's in the process. He's at a point of where he's going to have to answer that question in his own life. Am I willing to be associated with this man? He's, he's almost there. He's, he's stepped out and, and he's being associated for what is true at least from his law's perspective and what is right, but there will come a time, and it comes a time in our life where we have to say either we're with him or we're against him. There's plenty of people around, our, around us and around the world and social media and all the other places that we interact with one another that remind you of the foolishness of the narrow-mindedness of religion but the bible says that it is the power of god unto salvation that the gospel is the wisdom of god 
And through the wisdom of God, through the foolishness of what Paul preached in 1 Corinthians, he said he has done it this way to confound, to leave speechless the wise. Reminding us that we live in a culture that is ever learning, but they're never coming to the knowledge of the truth. They're always studying, always guessing, always coming up with new ideas and new fads and replacing old ones, but they never come to the rock-bottom foundation. At some point, as a believer in Christ, if we follow Christ, we have to be willing to be seen as foolish in the world's eyes to embrace wisdom that God has given to us, found in Jesus Christ. Paul displays that in his own life, doesn't he, when he says to this Roman church, epicenter of all the world at that time and he says i am not a what church i'm not ashamed of the gospel out of all of his learning and all the things that he could say to the church and all the the wisdom and all the correction he could do to roman society he comes to this final point i'm ready to preach to you and his message was the wisdom of god the gospel and it didn't matter if it was agrippa or felix or Festus or any, anybody he stood before, he stuck with the wisdom of God. He was willing to be thought a madman. As one guy said, all of your learning has made you mad. He's willing to be thought a madman because of his commitment to Christ. And church, we have to face that reality. We send our young people, we send our children, so we teach them. In your homes, your grandchildren, pour into them as much as possible because what they, what they find in the world is that everything you've been taught as a child, everything you've been taught in church is foolishness to them. And we must be active and steadily engaged in reminding them this is the wisdom of God. This is the word of God. Well, I could ask you this question. Does not believing in Jesus lead to a public confession of Christ as a Christian? As we said, Nicodemus will not be all, he will not always have it that easy to where he can just say something kind of, just kind of slide it in there. The same thing was true with us. You cannot live this life undecided about who Christ is. We cannot live this life without in some fashion or some way having that public confession that he is that he is who he is. Christianity is not lived out in private. It's not one of those things that's relegated to your closet. There is a closet, there is a personableness to Christianity, but it is a public it is a public profession. In fact, everywhere you go, everything you're supposed to put your hands to in all of our efforts is a declaration of who Jesus is. Not just who he is, but that we're with him. You think even back to your baptism. What are you saying? And I'm with this guy. This is what he's done in my life. This public confession of following Christ before a multitude. I'm resting in him for the forgiveness of sin. But the Bible reminds us as a church that we're to be light of the world, right? The world can have all these diverse opinions, but those who are following him are to be the light of the world, and by our good deeds they may glorify our Father in heaven. And even the command to go out and share the gospel reminds us that it isn't just the way you live, but it is the very things that you say. We're to share 
our faith, live our faith. It is a public profession. Now, we have seen a, a several views of Jesus Christ in conclusion to all this and those responses to him. He was a good teacher. He's a prophet. He's, a, he's the Messiah. He's, he's a country bumpkin or whatever you want to call him, backwoods deceiver. And in our day, you know, that's, that's the same stuff you get, isn't it? People's got all sorts of opinions about him. The greatest question could be asked is, how do you respond to him? How do you respond to one who says, come to me? If anyone thirsts, let him come and to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, we know what the world says, but the question is, how do you respond? And I think that's one of the things you see in this. As you see the multiple responses to Jesus, it, it presses upon us. How are we responding to that great invitation? Are we willing to step up and say that I'm following him? I'm trusting him. I'm going to him. And if you're not, if you haven't, I pray that even today you would put your faith and trust in Christ. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning that we can gather together. Thank you for the day that you've given to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder of the, the way Christ has impacted the lives of people. The reminder of those trying to grapple with the significance, the reality, the weightiness of who he is and his message. Father, we know that that's the same thing that goes on in our day. And I pray, Lord, that you would, you would help us, remind us, even as we see Nicodemus and find encouragement of you working in the world and places where we think are far gone, there you are working. You would also remind us this morning that our faith is not private, it is public. It is personal in the fact that we must put our faith and trust in you, but Lord, that we, we stand in this world and proclaiming that Jesus is sent by God, the Son of God, and that belief in him brings everlasting life. Give us that boldness we need. Lord, and I pray for those here this morning that don't know you, any here like that, that they might come to you even today in Jesus' name. Amen.